I think, you know, we should make lots of distinctions along the way, too. You know, one of the great biblical principles is about discernment, right? Kind of like equity, the conversation about equity. It doesn't mean equal application. It means what is the most appropriate application that levels the playing field related to injustice, exploitation, or, you know, kind of historic exclusion. And so I do think we should always, you know, have great discernment and nuance when we're talking about, you know, small businesses versus like Fortune 500, you know, fifth generation billionaires, right? <laughs> like, I think, I think, you know, an entrepreneur, someone who's just starting off will likely never get to that level of wealth. You're listening to the Transcend Podcast. I'm your host, Asha Wilkerson, an attorney by training and an educator at heart. This podcast is all about empowering you to build a business and leave a legacy. Here's the thing. The wealth gap in America is consistently increasing. And while full-time entrepreneurship is not for everyone, even a side hustle can change your financial landscape if you're intentional about using your business to build wealth. I've run my own law firm for over 10 years, and in that time, I've helped countless California businesses go from idea to six figures. On this podcast, we talk about what it truly takes to build a sustainable business and find financial freedom. Let's dive in. Oh my goodness, I am so excited for today's podcast guest. Pastor Michael McBride is one of my favorite humans on the planet. I've been going to his church since I was a second year law student way back in 2007. So we have a longstanding relationship. And I knew that he was going to be the perfect person for me to ask these questions about the intersection of faith and business, entrepreneurship, social justice, politics, and all of that stuff. So let me give you a little quick intro to who Pastor Mike is. Pastor Michael McBride, known as Pastor Mike, is a native of San Francisco and has been active in ministry for over 20 years. Pastor Mike's commitment to holistic ministry can be seen through his leadership roles in both the church and community organizations. A graduate of Duke University's Divinity School with a Master of Divinity and an emphasis in ethics and public policy, Pastor Mike founded the Way Christian Center in West Berkeley, where he presently serves as the lead pastor. Regarded as a national faith leader, in the Ferguson uprisings and many subsequent uprisings. He helps bridge, train, and support millennials and religious institutions working on racial justice and Black liberation. Pastor McBride has served on a number of local and national task forces with the White House and the Department of Justice regarding gun violence prevention, boys and men of color, and police community relationships. In 2016, he was appointed as an advisor on President Obama's Faith-Based Advisory Council for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. He has been a frequent contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC, CNN, the Huffington Post, and many other media outlets providing commentary on issues related to faith and racial justice. It is my honor and my pleasure to introduce you all to Pastor Michael McBride. All right. One of my favorite people, Pastor Mike, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Yo, the great Asha Wilkerson. I am honored <laughs> to be in your presence. And thank you for the opportunity to just holler with you for a second. Well, I appreciate it. I know that you are a busy, busy, busy human being. And so I appreciate the few minutes that you were able to jump on and spend with us. So I'll just get right to it just so we can get right to the point. 
as you know, this this platform is for black and brown business owners, entrepreneurs looking to build a business and leave a legacy. And the reason why I find it important is that we just need to bolster our economic status in this country, right? You got to have some money, participate in the systems, to change the systems, to create your own future and have some self-determination. As I have been walking, working with entrepreneurs more and more, and even just diving into my own story, we all have some kind of understanding about money, about finances, about what we are entitled to receive. And, you know, if we get too much, then maybe we're getting further and further away from that good human being, that good Christian, that good, you know, religious person. So I just wanted to shed some light on that conversation so we can begin to talk about some of the beliefs that maybe we've held for a while that are no longer serving us and maybe incorrect or unuseful interpretations from our foundation. So that's my long intro. Welcome to the conversation. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's certainly an important one. I think much of what you said is totally right. Uh, we have been taught a way of engaging with money, with resources, with uh, creation, the, the you know the uh, ecosystem that has literally contributed to, if not our our death, literally, it has certainly caused us to not have the ability to thrive. So this is a great conversation, and I'm glad to uh, offer my bootleg preacher reflections to this whole thing. <laughs> Nothing bootleg about it. Very real, very practical, a great marriage of faith and practice, as you like to say. So I was telling my podcast editor about my idea for this episode. And she said, you know, she grew up in East San Jose and she said she grew up poor. And she said one of the things that she would hear in church is that, you know, God loves the poor and that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And she said now that she is running her own business and you know trying to amass some wealth and secure her financial future, she's thinking subconsciously, does God still love me if I'm no longer poor? And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a really good question because a lot of times we hear messages that support us in our situation and then we start to move beyond that and the message doesn't change. So what is your take or what is your understanding about being a good Christian or God loving you more when you don't have money versus when you do have money? Well, it's clear that, uh, at least to me, and I hope it's clear to everyone who's listening that you know God's love for all of uh, creation, certainly for human beings, is not predicated on the amount of money you have or don't have. This idea that God loves the poor is true, but it is not connected to you being poor. It is connected to you being created in the image of God, right? That God loves the poor, but God despises poverty because poverty is a created kind of condition. It's a created system within, again, if we're just talking within kind of a theological framework, poverty is a created condition within a system of abundance that God creates the world with enough for everyone to have what they need and a a whole lot to be left over. Poverty is a result of a very few small number of people um, using greed and exploitation to create the conditions for the enough to become scarce. And so when when, it's, when it's, the scripture says God loves the poor, it is an affirmation of the inherent value of those who are being victimized by the greedy among us. It is not the a sense that God is consigning a whole group of people 
to poverty for their whole life. And that is then their lot in order to be loved by God. Right. I really appreciate that. And I think that's important to hear because, you know, black and brown folks, we're, our, our economic status is still tied so much and interwoven with race and, you know, dominant ideologies will keep a certain group at the bottom, right? Capitalism, for instance, you know, or just the way things are run in this country. But that is not where we have to stay in order to be good people or good, you know, followers of Christ or good religious people in general, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's important to keep making a real emphasis or distinction between the idea that poverty and the poor are not the same thing. And and that scripture is, is attempting to describe to its readers the values of the creator. It is about reminding us that the earth, everything that's created in the earth is the Lord's. It is an act of abundance and generosity and that we who are human beings must reflect our own kind of stewardship of those same resources, right? As being generous and sharing and not being exploitive. And I think that that for black and brown folks who have often been at the uh, in the position of exploitation, we are often not fully you know, appreciative of the ways in which the systems of this world, the greedy and the, the elite forces have created a literally a multi-generational kind of uh, ceiling of poverty. And I think the scripture is always good news to the readers. And so the good news is that our value is not connected to um, our bank account. And yet we are also told to be good stewards of everything we have, which means that we should be stewarding all of creation, which is in and of itself wealthy, <laughs> right? Enough, abundant. And so I think it's really important to, to eschew or to shed some of those you know, I would call them bad, you know, theological teachings around money and, and, and et cetera. Yeah, I agree. I like that. So you mentioned abundance. Where is the line between having abundance and enough and having too much? Because there's, so we, we've gotten past, okay, we don't have to be impoverished to be connected to God, right? That's a system. That's a structure that is designed and we don't have to stay there. But now if we're thinking about, okay, we are no longer in this position, we're growing and we're trying to build a business and trying to amass wealth. What is the guidance between doing too much and being a good steward to where your finances can grow and you can leave this legacy for the generations that come after you? You know, that's a, that's a fascinating and very, I would say, kind of complicated question. I don't know that there's one answer to it. I think uh, we who are, you know, followers of Jesus or people who are attempting to be, you know, more religious-centered, compassionate folks li literally have to spend the rest of our lives wrestling with this question. I think there are some general principles, though, that we could use as, as markers along the way. I think the first thing we ought to always say to ourselves is that greed and exploitation must never be a part of our business model, right? Um, and that we should have values that are cooked and baked into how we are amassing wealth. I think that there are also some clear kind of questions we should ask the kind of economic systems that are deeply informing the way in which we are amassing wealth. 
And so, you know, I don't believe that any of the economic systems that we talk about are inherently uh, more Christian than others, right? I don't think capitalism is more inherently Christian or biblical than socialism or Marxism or or social democracy, blah, 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 blah. But I do think all of these systems uh, should be interrogated for the outcomes they produce. And so if we are participating in a capitalistic economy, the question for us is, how can our participation in this economy afford us the opportunity to not amass wealth in ways that actually create the conditions for the systems of poverty, right? And so I do believe that there are some ways for us to think about how do we ensure that we are paying fair wages? How do we ensure that we are extending to the workers those same benefits that we ourselves would like to have? Uh, What does it mean for us to uh, ensure that we are, you know, following labor laws and not trying to, you know, get out of, uh, you know, taxes and, you know, all of these different kinds of things. I think there are questions we have to ask ourselves. I think it's kind of hard to participate in a capitalistic economy that is inherently, at least in this country, predatory and then like not wrestle with these questions about how do we build our businesses in ways that both can exist in this system, but not be overdetermined by this system. Does that make sense? Right. It does. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think all of us, and no matter what profession you're in, we all have to ask ourselves, even me as a pastor, like I can make a, a conscious choice to preach a prosperity message because that is kind of like one way Christianity, unfortunately, in this country shows up reflective of a predatory capitalistic economy. Or I can say that's probably not the most faithful expression of Christian preaching. And so I'm going to attempt to teach something that actually has some more justice impulses embedded in it. It doesn't take me off the hook, though, of having to still wrestle with the tug and pull of both of those things. And I will say the same thing to business owners and entrepreneurs. How you build your business will greatly determine the kind of outcomes that reflect the values that you hold. Right. I love that. And also just as a reminder to folks, I think we get confused because it's all matched together. Capitalism, religion, poverty structures, that that these things, the system in and of itself is not inherently good or bad. Capitalism is not good or bad. It is just a system, right? So the way that you are or the way that people are participating in the system can lead to results or does lead to results that are, you know, quote unquote, good or bad. But by participating in capitalism doesn't make you inherently you know, a bad person, you can use capitalism to produce good results. And a friend of mine, a good friend of mine said, she said, you know, don't forget, there's a difference between capitalism and brutal capitalism. So a lot of times when we're, you know, talking about every election and there's, you know, something on the ballot about taxes and the folks who aren't benefiting from the big corporate tax breaks are looking at these big businesses, mostly led by white men and going, this is terrible, right? But those same tax benefits and breaks are available to any entrepreneur, any corporation. And it's not Without getting into whether the tax break is good or bad, it is available. We just don't all know about it. It's not the tax break itself that's necessarily the problem. It's like how it's applied, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I think, you know, we should make lots of distinctions along the way, too. You know, one of the great biblical principles is about discernment, right? 
kind of like equity, the conversation about equity. It doesn't mean equal application. It means what is the most appropriate application that levels the playing field related to injustice, exploitation, or, you know, kind of historic exclusion. And so I do think we should always, you know, have great discernment and nuance when we're talking about, you know, small businesses versus like Fortune 500, you know, fifth generation billionaires, right? <laughs> like, I think, I think, you know, an entrepreneur, someone who's just starting off will likely never get to that level of wealth. And so we ought not, you know, act with like these kinds of broad brush kind of approaches. I think we should take care and be very intentional about continuously interrogating the ways in which we are amassing wealth, you know, reminding ourselves that the participation in the American capitalistic machine does have international implications that we may or may not be aware of. And so all of these things then require us to kind of have the sermon about, so if I participate in this way, how do I, you know, ensure that I'm acting, you know, with charity and justice in this way, so I'm able to at least balance out or compensate some of these realities, right? And so I do think it's really, really important for us as we're studying kind of all of these ways to amass wealth, that we don't do it all in a vacuum or in a silo. The interconnectedness of creation of human beings, of economic systems, of nations, of governments, of the ecosystem. All of this is something that we should be mindful of. It's probably, you know, irresponsible to suggest the entrepreneurs shall hold the weight of that by themselves. But you just want to be mindful of it and not not be willfully obtuse about it. Yeah, I, I like that as well. So in connection to that, you do a lot of work around social justice, a lot of uh, messaging around social justice and community organizing. And I believe that entrepreneurship is one of the tools we can use as social justice warriors to create a more just society for the people who are marginalized and left out. In your work as a community organizer and meeting with different pockets of folks across the nation, can you identify some ways that Black-owned, Latinx-owned, you know, margin like underrepresented uh, entrepreneurs can affect directly the communities that they are in to merge this? I'm taking care of myself and helping my family and myself, but also I'm having an impact on the community that is also good and just and, you know, serving a purpose. Oh, such a great question. And so I think it's always important for us to remember, particularly folks black or brown coming from, you know, historically disenfranchised and marginalized communities, that we are literally standing on the shoulders of the people who came before us, that those who were picking cotton or laboring in the fields, have were literally doing so with us in mind, right? They were hoping that there would be a time where we could move without as much restriction so we could secure a future for our families and our communities and allow us to not be dependent upon the goodwill of the political and economic white elite system. And so all of, if all of that is true, and I certainly believe it is true, then I do believe that as we fight for justice, there is always an economic component to that justice fight. I think it is often underappreciated the amount of folks who are able, particularly with criminal convictions and criminal records, who are able to get hired 
by uh, black and brown entrepreneurial groups because we all appreciate the journey that most have had to make in the last 30 or 40 years since the war on drugs ravaged our communities and put so many of our loved ones uh, under the surveillance of the state, either through incarceration, electronic monitoring, et cetera. And so what does it mean, right, to, to intentionally create you know, business and a sector that allows there to be this on-ramping from a tech perspective, from a, a service perspective, from a mental health perspective, from a legal perspective, et cetera, et cetera, financial services perspective. What does it mean for us to create these pathways to employment that afford at least, you know, an entry-level position or even a career-long pathway for individuals in our communities who are likely not going to get the similar kind of opportunity. Right now, we are super, you know, committed in pulling down about $5 billion from the federal government to support the public health responses to gun violence and mass incarceration. And so this is a whole sector. It's a multi-billion dollar sector of work that will need folks who are able to do art and able to uh, do financial management and teaching classes, able to do therapeutic and mental health support and uh, drug and alcohol and addiction and, you know, coding and, and, and legal services and on and on, targeting this particular population, right? So I do think folks in the entrepreneurial space should think about how can my business model have a portion of it that draws down on the kind of social justice or social entrepreneurship models. So as I am kind of stabilizing my own, say, nuclear family, quote unquote, I'm also stabilizing my whole community at the same time. Right. Yeah. I think it's really important. Oftentimes we feel that, I'll speak from my own experience. When I graduated law school, it's like, oh, do I go back and work in the community at this nonprofit organization that's only going to pay $50,000 a year and do good work, but in the struggle? Or do, and my dad told me, he was like, if you don't figure out how to take care of yourself, you're going to need the services like everybody else you're trying to serve. And I was like, you know, <laughs> you, might, you might have a point, right? So oftentimes we have this, this rub, this internal conflict uh, as folks of color. Do we leave, quote unquote, the community to secure our well-being and, and to meet our immediate needs? Or do we stay in and fight, which is a good fight, but then unfortunately we're asked to give up you know, economic stability. So if we are able to create those systems, those businesses that have an eye towards, you know, empowering the community, creating more jobs, you know, hiring the disenfranchised, we will no longer have to make that choice to leave outside of the community and find financial stability versus staying in and foregoing financial stability. Yeah. And I think there are multiple ways to, to help provide that kind of stability that doesn't necessarily require um, you in your kind of infancy phase to feel the financial burden, right? Like the skill set most entrepreneurs have would be a blessing to the social justice sector by serving on boards or by volunteering or by doing free trainings. And you do a lot of that, right? Like, you know, people need skills. People need to be exposed to knowledge and information. And so I certainly think that creating business is certainly one way, but business is a result of knowledge, right? It's a result of skills and talents and passions. And so I would encourage folks to think beyond just the kind of 
nuts and bolts of nickels and dimes, right? It's about like, how do we use our businesses, our entrepreneurship kind of sensibilities, our intellectual rigor? Um, how do we use all of that to create an ecosystem of stability and knowledge transfer that cr- produces and multiplies wealth? And uh, I think that is another way perhaps folks can think about you know, plugging in to some of the fights that are happening. I often say you can donate, you can advocate, or you can participate, right? You put some tap on it. There's three ways. And so you can do all of that at the same time. Yeah, that's important, right? Because again, that that rub, it seems to be just a dichotomy. You can do either this or that, but there are so many more options to participate and to make an impact that don't require, they don't have to be self-sacrificial, which is, you know, what we're taught oftentimes that they have to be. All right, moving into the third area, let's talk about, you know, this the political context right now and the idea that Jesus was this pacifist and if we are, you know, good believers and faithful people that we we don't participate in this political realm and we just try and keep the peace. You know, from my understanding, Jesus was quite revolutionary and spoke out against the empire and stood on behalf of the poor and the under-resourced and the marginalized and was very clear about the message that about things that were unjust. So how do we reconcile this this modern day Jesus with what your understanding of you know the historical Jesus was? Well, this is such a fascinating conversation um, to have because I think Jesus is arguably one of the most uh, misrepresented figures in history in the Western kind of civilization. I'm going to start with me personally and then try to, you know, make a connection to how I think Jesus should be understood. As a pastor, I have to provide spiritual leadership and support to hundreds of individuals who I tell regularly, I love them, I care for them, I want to see them thrive and safe and healthy, etc. And when members of my congregation come and share with me that their son is being, un- you know, unfairly singled out in school and expelled, or their daughter is being victimized by sexism or misogyny, or their father is being brutalized by the police, or their auntie is uh, getting, you know, constantly raided by ICE looking for uh, her husband who may not be documented. As someone who says, I love these folks, I cannot just sit there and not respond to them. My response is an act of love, is an act of compassion. It is an act of my responsibility to the people that I feel called to serve. Well, Jesus literally was born in an empire that had his people at the bottom of the social ladder. And they were constantly experiencing violence by the hands of the police of their day. They were constantly experiencing violence at the hands of the political systems of their day. They certainly did not have the ability to fully uh, live into their God-given, say, dignity, etc. And so Jesus comes certainly as a divine figure, but certainly in a human context and, and approaches people at the place of their need and speaks directly to both their spiritual and their human reality. And I think it's very, it's very difficult in the Western church 
where too often, particularly after the 1600s or so, the, the scriptures have been used to to make a, a moral cover for imperialism and genocide and domination, right? For folks to fully understand or appreciate that Jesus is not just a prince of peace during Christmas time, right? You know, it didn't say, and he shall be called the prince of peace during Christmas. No, it, it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a life long eternal description of the ways of Jesus. The Western church, which has unfortunately been privy and complicit to so much of the kind of, you know, warmongering, et cetera, imperializing of the world, the Western church has turned Jesus into the Lord of war, right? So I think it's really important for us to imagine that the work of Jesus, you know, across time, across place, but particularly in his particular human life, was reflecting a need to care for the people that he would call the least of these. That is what justice is about. It's about having a consciousness that there are systems in this world that literally exploit the weak and the vulnerable among us. Some of the weak and vulnerable among us are socially placed in this way, not because of something they've done wrong themselves, but because they've been born into a poverty situation or they have too much melanin in their skin, or they uh, are gendered differently in a context where uh, power is ascribed and bequeathed to others and, and not all. And so I do believe it's really important for us to, again, keep interrogating how we understand Jesus. And I would say any religious faith, like I do think it's really, really important for us to remember that the best that our religious traditions have to offer us are always about fairness and justice and inclusion and equity, it speaks very clearly against the greed and the violence and the the theft of the wealthy and the rich. And we ought to make sure we do not, you know, find ourselves named in those kinds of uh, categories. Yeah, absolutely. So if you were listening today and you had some questions about how your faith can intermingle, intermix with your desire to, you know, create generational wealth, I hope that this conversation has shed some clarity on that, that there is nothing wrong with being a believer in Christ and building a business. There are also ways that you can carry out missions of social justice and access and fairness through your business without having to sacrifice, you know, your own financial gains. There are ways to participate in this system that are representative of, you know, the tenets of faith that talk about justice, that talk about access, that talk about reaching the poor, that talk about just being good stewards of what we are given and, you know, the ability to grow and to have more because there is abundance in this world. There's enough for all of us. That's what I always say. Switch from that scarcity mindset to that abundance mindset. There is enough. And you as an entrepreneur especially Black, Brown, BIPOC, queer entrepreneur have so much opportunity to make your impact on the world, whether it is just with the clients you serve in your neighborhood, in your state, in your nation, or in the world. So go forward and do what you do. Let us know if you have any questions, need some support. We will be happy to support you. Pastor Mike, if they want to check into you a little bit more and find out where where you hang out, can you tell them where to find you? Sure. You can go to my website, PastorMikeMcBride.com, and it has all the links to the church, our church in the Bay Area, the way Berkeley, the national campaigns we lead called the Live for USA campaign, the Black Brown Peace Consortium, and the Black Church Pack. You can go to PastorMikeMcBride.com and you'll 
get plugged in. I'm on all the social media channels. My handle is I'm Pastor Mike underscore. I am Pastor Mike underscore. And uh, yeah, follow me. You'll you'll hear all kind of ongoing radical uh, rants from uh, the bootleg preacher. the messages that we need to hear to empower us and to meet us right where we are. I appreciate you, Pastor Mike. Thank you so much. All love, Asha. You are the bomb diggity. Thanks for all you do for the world. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. If you want to learn more about how you can build a business and leave a legacy, check out our online community where we dive deeper into these concepts. And I literally pull back the curtain to show you how I help entrepreneurs just like you build a sustainable business that leads to financial freedom. You can find out more at the wilkersonlawoffice.com. Hey family, I am so thankful that you are here listening to Transcend the Podcast. And I just want to make sure you know the best way to stay in contact with me. And that's through joining my email newsletter. So please head on over to the wilkersonlawoffice.com slash newsletter and join the list. I will tell you everything over there from what my offerings are to bits and pieces of information about how to grow and scale your business to self-coaching all the way to giving you updates on what the new podcast episode is. So don't hesitate. Go do it now. The wilkersonlawoffice.com slash newsletter. Thanks.